invite you to open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark. Now for me, that is a wonderful thing to say again. For some of you, that might not be a wonderful thing because you heard me say that for about two years at the beginning of our sermon time. Open your Bibles to the book of Mark. But last year in March, we got interrupted from our series in Mark. And you know why we were interrupted from our series in Mark. Because many things were interrupted. And we were about four sermons from the end. So I am picking it back up this week with the hopes, the plans of finishing on Easter Sunday with the resurrection account. This morning we'll be in Mark chapter 14. Just to remind you of where we were a year ago, where we stopped. We were left Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Actually, we didn't leave him there, but the the council, the, the, the Jewish leaders, along with Judas, came to take him away. In fact, if you want to lead into this verse, the verses we're going to read, verse 46 says, And they laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And now we pick up where their hands lead Jesus. Starting in verse 53, read through the end of the chapter and actually the first verse of chapter 15. So follow along in your Bibles if you would. And they led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And Peter was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. Excuse me. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. Some began to spit on him, to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. The guards received him with blows. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway and the rooster crowed and the servant girl saw him and began to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly, you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And Peter broke down and wept. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priest held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and they led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. 
Let's pause and pray before we move on. Father, we now ask that as we have opened your Bibles and opened our Bibles and seen what you have kept for us with our eyes, we are asking now that your spirit would take these words and these truths and write them on our hearts, Father. Father, help this not to go in one ear and out the other. But help your word to land in our hearts, Father. Father, we need our faith and courage. We need to be strengthened and we know that that comes through your word. It is our daily bread. So Father, help us in this moment, we pray. Help me in this moment, not to take away from your word, but simply to point us all to it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as I said at the beginning, it's been a a while since we have been in Mark. So we might forget the author who we are reading, who are we hearing from, the human author. In one sense, this author of Mark is the same author that we've been in and been reading from in Ecclesiastes. Um, We believe that all of the Bible, Old and New Testament, all of it is written by a divine author. It's written by God himself, but he, he writes these books, he writes this scripture through human authors. And the author of Mark is a very different person from the author we've been hearing from in Ecclesiastes. The author of Ecclesiastes, you remember, is the one who is known as the preacher. And he is writing to show the futility, the emptiness, the meaninglessness of life under the sun. But the author of Mark is very different. He's a close companion of the apostle Peter. And he is writing to encourage Christians who are suffering under the Roman Emperor Nero. The ones who are reading Mark's or who would have been reading Mark's gospel because he, he wrote it for someone originally. And I hate to break your bubble, but it was not us sitting here in Living Hope Fellowship 2,000 years later, although God, God sovereignly gave it to us. But he was writing, first of all, to a group of Christians who lived at the same time of him. Christians who have had friends and relatives used as human torches to light up Nero's gardens while he took a nightly stroll. Mark, Mark is writing to, to those who have had neighbors who they thought they could trust, but they've had them turn on them and find, when they find out that they are Christians. The ones who are first reading Mark's gospel are ones who are meeting in churches and hiding. They're meeting in the catacombs. They're meeting underground in burial sites, graveyards, so that they will not be seen. The ones Mark is writing to are those who are living, as Kent Hughes says, in a world that is inhospitable to followers of Jesus. A world that is inhospitable to followers of Jesus. And Mark writes to encourage them. But he also writes to remind them that following Jesus is worth it. Following Jesus is worth it. And he does both of those things in these two stories that we have as our text this morning. Uh, One of the literary tools that Mark has used throughout his writing is what some refer to as the Markin sandwich. Now that is not a new sub on the Subway menu, but if if you want to start a Christian or Bible-based deli, there here's your first uh, menu item. But the Markin sandwich is where Mark takes two stories and he sandwiches them together in a way that we cannot read one without the other. And he does this because we need to understand these stories together. There are nine of these in the Gospel of Mark, which is a lot considering there's only 16 chapters. Uh, One of them is in chapter 11 with the cursing of the fig tree and the clearing of the temple. 
sandwiched between two accounts of this fig tree is what Jesus does in the temple. And if you remember those two accounts, or if you know what is contained in those two accounts, you know that they belong together. You know that the cursing of the fig tree helps us to understand why Jesus goes in and cleanses the temple. But also vice versa. The cleansing of the temple is an explanation of why in the world Jesus cursed this fig tree and it withered and died. Another example is earlier in this chapter that we are in, in chapter 14, where Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper, but surrounded by that institution of the Lord's Supper is Jesus predicting that someone, one of his own, will betray him and then predicting that it would be Peter. And again, these stories, they help us see one in light of the other. And these are just two examples of these sandwiches of Mark. And we have another one in our verses this morning. The trial of Jesus surrounded by the trials of Peter. The trial of Peter. And again, we learn something by seeing them together. In particular, for those who were living in a culture that was inhospitable to Christians, Mark's readers learned something about remaining faithful from the example of Jesus and the example of Peter. The example of faithful Jesus and failing Peter. And so will we. And so we need to see this example because we also are living in a culture that is growingly inhospitable to followers of Jesus. So let's look at these two trials and the two men in the midst of them. First, faithful Jesus, because it's always good to start with Jesus. And then failing Peter. Faithful Jesus. Jesus faithful under trial. Before we look at this trial specifically, it might help be helpful to get our bearings as to where we are in this story. And this trial that we have is actually one of six trials that Jesus endured in a very short period of time. He endured three Jewish trials. They were religious trials by the leaders of the Jews. And then three Roman or civil trials. And I'm going to go through this very quickly, but I found this helpful as I thought about the experiences of Jesus in these verses that we read and the timeline surrounding Jesus' trials. It started on Thursday evening, the day before Good Friday at 6 p.m. to 11.30 p.m. And these are rough estimates. They seem to be the the the, the what most agreed on. But of course, they're not exact. But 6 to 11.30 on Thursday night, Jesus eats the Passover meal with His disciples. In the midst of that, Judas leaves to, leaves to betray Jesus. And then Jesus leads His disciples out into the Garden of Gethsemane. After that, Jesus prays in the Garden through the hour of midnight. And then... In the midst of that, Jesus is confronted in the garden and arrested. And that brings us to the trials and to our verses this morning. And this is where it might be helpful to see the timeline, to see when these things take place. First is a trial that is not recorded in Mark. It's only recorded in John. And that is a trial before the former high priest, Annas. Annas is no longer the high priest. He's the father-in-law of Caiaphas, Caiaphas, but he is a powerful man in the Jewish world. And Jesus is brought before Annas in an informal trial of sorts. And he's brought before him to question him. In fact, verse 19 of John chapter 18 says that the high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. In our verses, we know that the Jewish leaders, they don't have actually anything they can convict Jesus about. So they bring Jesus before Annas, hopefully hoping that he will give them something that they can pin on Jesus. 
It's also before Annas where the first instance of physical abuse of Jesus takes place because Jesus is slapped for talking back to Annas. In addition to this being a a time to get information from Jesus and maybe rough him up a little bit, it's also a time to, to provide a delay for the Sanhedrin as well as the witnesses to gather at the house of Caiaphas. Again, look at the time we are in. The Sanhedrin was 70 scribes, chiefs, priests, and elders, along with the high priest. So a total of 71 of them. All of them make their way to Caiaphas' house at 1.30 in the morning, along with many witnesses. So this provides a delay to gather the troops. The next two came up together. But Friday from 2 to 5 a.m. is what the majority of our text is. Jesus before Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin. This trial becomes a little more formal, or we might say a little less informal. And they're looking for a reason that they can officially give to hand him over to Pilate for the death sentence. Chapter 15, verse 1, the last verse that we read is this third trial, just a real quick meeting in the morning to officially give the verdict that Jesus is guilty and that he needs to go to Pilate to be crucified. This is the formal trial of the Jews. From there we go, we move on to the three Roman trials and the time there's not a break from from 5 a.m. to 6 a.m. We go to 6 a.m. to 7 a.m. where Jesus is taken before Pilate. The Jews knew that Pilate and, and most Roman governors, they, they did all of their work in the morning. If you did not get someone before them first thing in the morning, you were not going to get them before him that day. So they needed to get Jesus to before Pilate as soon as possible. So they get him there at 6 a.m. in the morning. We'll read this next few weeks of this account. But Pilate's answer is he sees no guilt in him, so he sends him to Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas mocks Jesus. Jesus is silent before him and Herod sends him back to Pilate. And then from 7.30 to 8.30 a.m., Jesus is now in his third Roman trial, his sixth trial in just a little over, what are we at, nine hours. And there Jesus is given, or Pilate gives the order to execute Jesus. Again, he finds nothing wrong with him, but he wants to appease the crowd. Again, very quickly, just moving on. From there we go to his crucifixion and death. From 8.30 to 9 o'clock, Jesus is taken into the Roman Praetorium, which is what John and Joan read a little bit of this morning, where he is mocked, beaten, and receives a crown of thorns. From 9 to 12, Jesus is forced to carry his cross to Golgotha and the crucifixion begins from 12 to 3 p.m. Darkness is over the over the, the earth as Jesus is on the cross. And at 3 p.m. Jesus dies and by and at 3.30 his side is pierced. And by 5 o'clock Jesus is buried in the tomb. And just look how fast all of that happened. From Jesus having Passover with his disciples Thursday 6 p.m. Less than 12, 24 hours later, Jesus is buried. As I was typing up this timeline in my, my notes, I was listening to instrumental hymns and somewhere through that I, I noticed that the hymn that was playing was the hymn, Were You There? Were you there when they crucified my Lord? And when I typed that last moment, Jesus' burial, the, the last verse started to play. Were you there when they laid him in the ground? Were you there when they laid him in the ground? Oh, Sometimes it causes me to tremble. And I listened to that last verse 
playing as I reflected on this timeline. And it caused me to tremble. To tremble with love that Jesus would go through us, but also in a sense, but also to tremble in anger at the injustice of it all. And we notice the injustice of it all with this first trial that Mark records, the trial before Caiaphas. Again, he doesn't record the trial before Annas. He records with Jesus before Caiaphas in the Sanhedrin at 2 to 5, from 2 to 5 a.m. And there are many reasons why this trial is unjust. Daniel Aiken says it is difficult to count up all the violations of the Jewish law. But then Aiken and others go on to list some. For example, in capital cases like Jesus, like Jesus's trials at night were forbidden. In cases where a guilty verdict a second day and session were required to ensure a fair trial. Such a trial could not convene on a Sabbath or a festival. Remember, we're in Passover. In addition, a charge of blasphemy could not be sustained unless the defendant cursed God's name, which Jesus never did. And then the penalty was to be death by stoning, not crucifixion. In Jesus' case, no formal meeting of the Sanhedrin ever took place in the temple precincts precincts, which is the proper location for trial. They met in the night at Caiaphas's house because they knew if they gathered in the day at the temple, a mob would come for, come and storm the temple because Jesus was well loved. Nor was Jesus provided or even offered a defense attorney. All of these are violations of the Jewish law. And there's many more injustices that we could point to. But the real injustice is what Mark tells us when he opens up the trial with these words. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But the, but they found they found none. But remember, they've already arrested Jesus. They've been trying to arrest him for a while. Mark has repeatedly mentioned how the chief priests and the scribes are looking for a way to destroy Jesus, to arrest Jesus, to arrest him by stealth and kill him. And now at last they have him, but they don't have any evidence to make this arrest legitimate or what they really desire, his death, his killing legitimate. They have gotten the cart before the horse. They have arrested Jesus and now they begin to look for evidence. We all know the saying that in a court of law you are innocent until proven guilty, but this is the opposite for Jesus. They have already decided the verdict of guilty and now they look for a way to prove it. But they can't find any. Many, Mark says, bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. Their testimonies didn't stick. Their testimonies, they didn't line up, which reminds us that it's much harder to get two people to agree about a lie than to find two people telling the same truth. The lies don't line up. And even when they almost do, when they, they seem to be talking about the same thing, the details just don't line up. There's too many discrepancies. We heard Jesus say this, but then another says, well, it wasn't quite like that, was it? We still see this trial of Jesus today, don't we? Uh, we? We see those who don't want to believe in the Jesus of the Bible, the one who is our creator and our judge. So we try to find evidence to get rid of him, trying to disprove him or explain him away. In his book, The 
in his book, God in the Dock, C.S. Lewis writes about this. And if you're not familiar with that language, the dock is not referring to a boat dock. But it's a, the dock of a courtroom where the person sits who is on trial. And Lewis says that God, we have placed God in the dock while we are on the bench. We are the judge. And he writes, the ancient man approached God or even God's as the accused per- person approaches his judge. They come before God recognizing their guilt. But he says, for the modern man, the roles are quite reversed. He is the judge and God is in the dock. He is quite a kindly judge. If God should have a reasonable defense for being the God who permits war, poverty, and disease, well, he's ready to listen to it. The, the trial may even end in God's acquittal. But the important thing is that man is on the bench and God is in the dock. We might let God off as we, as we find out answers from him, but the point is that we have placed ourselves above God and he better line up with the way we want him to be. This week I was talking to someone who decided that they weren't going to be attending any church anymore. And the, the reason they, they said this is because they're just uncomfortable with the way they hear Christians talk lately with concerns about the way our culture is going. Because for them they said, I, I don't have any problems with these things. And these things are things of abortion, transgenderism, homosexuality and, and other things. And so they said, we're, we're going to take a break from the church and we're going to decide who is the God that we want to worship and how we want to worship Him. And that was one example, but I see this all over the place. But do you hear the problem? Our culture has decided the lifestyle that they want to live and now they want to find a God who will affirm that lifestyle. And my response to this, this one individual is that it's great for them to be thinking deeply about things, but they need to realize they've gotten things reversed. The question is not, what God do you want to worship? But the question is, who is the God who is to be worshipped? The question is not who you want God to be, but who is God? Imagine after your wedding day, you handed your spouse a list and you said, okay, here is what I have always wanted my wife to be married, what, what I have always wanted the wife I'm married to to be like. Do this. That's not going to work very well. If, you've have, if you haven't tried that yet, I would not suggest it. You are not married to the idea of your wife. You are married to the person who is actually your wife and you need to adjust your marriage accordingly. We do not worship a God who we imagine in our minds, but we worship the God who is. And we need to adjust our worship and our lifestyle accordingly. And this is what Jesus says next. But before he says that, we need to see that he is silent. In the face of false accusations, Jesus does not even acknowledge them. Jesus is silent before them. Which reminds us of Isaiah's words about this suffering servant. He says, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter and like a sheep silent before his shearers, he did not open his mouth. Remember Peter's down in the courtroom and perhaps he saw a glimpse of what was taking place through a window. And he writes later of Jesus, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, He did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus is silent. Now imagine that room. The the tension in that room is mounting. 
Jesus has not spoken a word, but yet He is winning. All their plotting, all their planning, all of their lining up of false witnesses, even bribing one of Jesus' own disciples, Judas, all of it seems like it's going to be for nothing. And the opportunity to remove Jesus is slipping away. And then Caiaphas does something that he's not supposed to do and he turns and interrogates Jesus. Caiaphas' name means inquisitor. And he begins this great inquisition of Jesus. And he says to Jesus, are you the high priest? Are, Are you the Christ? Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? The word blessed is just a way that they use the name of God without risking saying it a wrong way, taking it in vain. They didn't want to take the Lord's name in vain, so they would replace it with other words, one of which was blessed. So he's asking him, are you the son of God? Now, if you remember, this has been Mark's whole point of his gospel to tell us that Jesus is the son of God. But so far in Mark's writing, that knowledge, that fact has been hidden The only ones who reveal it are demons. And when they do, Jesus tells them to be quiet. This identity has been kept a secret. But now, as the high priest asks Jesus and and Matthew, which might help us understand why Jesus speaks now, Matthew says he puts him under an oath. By the name of God, he says, "I I tell you, or I ask you. And Jesus lets the secret out. He says, I am. Now, we know when we hear that I am, we, we're thinking of Moses and at the burning bush and the I am statements. This is not one of those. Jesus is simply giving the affirmative. He's saying, yes, I am the son of the blessed. I am the son of God. But then he says something that is the equivalent of an I am statement because he connects himself with the son of man in David or in Daniel chapter seven and the king who is seated at the right hand of God in Psalm 110. Psalm 110, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And Daniel looks at it in his vision and says, I saw one like a son of man. He came to the ancient of days and to him was given dominion, glory and a kingdom and all people's nations language to serve him and his dominion is an everlasting dominion. And Jesus says that son of man is me and I am seated and you will see me seated at the right hand of God. Jesus uses their same pattern by referring to a God and not with the name of God, but by using that same pattern of the son of the right hand of power that's referring to God. But notice what Jesus is saying by referring to these verses. Both of these Old Testament references are referring to the one who will judge the world. R.C. Sproul says, essentially what Jesus is saying here is, yes, I am the Son of God. I came from heaven and I'm going back to heaven. I am appointed to judge the earth. And Sproul says this, he was letting them know this would not be the last time they would meet in the context of a trial. He would be back with all of the authority of heaven and he would judge them. This was his clear implication. Now, you know how much I love sermons with three points. I almost had to make this another point because there's another trial referenced in this passage. And that is the trial that where Jesus will be sitting on the throne and Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin will be standing before him. Jesus says, you may be sitting as my judge now, but one day the tables are going to be reversed. John points ahead to this day in Revelation chapter one, verse seven. 
when he says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. So, amen. To Pearson. What should take place to Jesus' words in that moment is a wailing from the house of Caiaphas. This is who they've arrested. This is the one they have set up this kangaroo court for. But instead of wailing, what takes place? Outrage. The priest tears his garments, which was signifying the, the verdict of guilty, and said, there's no need for any more witnesses. Stop trying to gather the witnesses. Jesus has turned himself in. And they all condemned him as deserving death. And then they began to abuse him. Verse 65. Begin to spit on him. To cover his face. And to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. The guards, even the servants, received him with blows. This this mocking of prophesy is based off a poor interpretation of Isaiah chapter 11, where Isaiah wrote that the, the coming Messiah, he wouldn't judge by what he saw, he wouldn't judge by what he heard, so they assumed he would judge by what he smelled. So they are saying, if you're the Messiah, we're going to cover your eyes, we're going to cover your ears, prophesy to us. By your smell. But what they don't know in that moment is that they are fulfilling a prophecy that Jesus has already made. Jesus told his disciples that we're going to Jerusalem and the Son of Man is going to be delivered over to the chief priests, the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and they will spit on him and they will flog him and they will kill him. And after three days he will rise. But even before Jesus said that, they are fulfilling a prophecy of long ago in Isaiah 50 where that says, the, the servant says, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Jesus was the one blindfolded, but yet it was the Sanhedrin who the ones who were blind. Blinded by their hate, blinded by their arrogance, blinded by their sin. As Peter would later say to these very men, this Jesus, this Jesus, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. But yet through it all, Jesus remained the faithful witness. Revelation 1.5 describes him as that. He remained faithful. He was not swayed or deterred. He remained faithful to the calling God has placed had placed on his life. He was obeying his father. But from Jesus the faithful, we turn to Peter the failing. Peter the failing. And from the upper room of Caiaphas' home, we travel down to the courtyard. And from a room that was ablaze with torches in the middle of the night, we come to a small, most likely a charcoal fire. And from Jesus being interrogated by the most powerful men in Judaism, we come to Peter being questioned by a servant girl. This is the same Peter who not long ago boasted that even if everyone else would fall away, he, Peter, would not. In fact, he said, I, Jesus, would be willing to even die with you. But when the soldiers came in the garden... Jesus or Peter scattered with the rest of the disciples. 
Now at a distance he comes and he comes to see what will happen. Matthew says that he comes to see the end. He's not coming to rescue Jesus. He's just coming to watch. But as he warms himself by the fire, a a flame is cast across his face. And the servant girl, a servant girl recognizes him and says, I know you. You also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. Now, the Nazarene is a derogatory term. Judean Jews, they look down on Jews from Galilee, which is where Nazareth was. And the NIV captures that the feelings behind her statement well when it says that Nazarene. It's a derogatory term. And, and that alone is enough for, for Peter to be afraid. Peter denies it and says, I, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know and I don't understand what you mean. He tries to escape the light and to escape the girl and goes out into the gateway. And Mark tells us that at that point, the rooster gives his first crow. That should have been a reminder to Peter, but yet it wasn't. He ignores it. The girl again comes and finds him. Peter can't escape her. He can't get away from her. And she says to, to one of the bystanders, this man, this, this is one of them. But again, Mark says, he denied it. And that phrase in verse 70, or that word denied, doesn't mean just a one-time action, but it's, a, it's put in the present tense. It's a continual action. He kept on denying it. One person said that at this, Peter went off. I don't know what you're talking about. And he kept going and profusely denying Jesus. Peter, the one Jesus referred to as the rock, is beginning to crack. Finally, some bystanders agree with this girl. John says that it's a relative of the man Malchus whose ear Peter had just chopped off. And he says, I know you. I saw you. I saw you. You were with him. You are Galilean. And then Peter, even more so, goes off. And he begins to call down curses on himself. He begins to call down curses and swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. Peter feels cornered. Peter feels trapped. So he goes off. And notice throughout all of this, Peter can't even say Jesus' name. He never refers to him by Jesus. He just refers to him as that man. Mark says he invokes a curse And he swears. And we might think that's the same thing, but Robert Stein points out that these are two separate actions. The first involves cursing and can refer to calling a curse upon oneself if one is lying or will not fulfill a purpose. But it usually functions as a transitive verb having an object that is cursing someone else. In the present context, the object is most likely Jesus. He curses Jesus. And then he swears Not referring to profanity, but referring to a swearing and oath that what one is saying is true. R.C. Sproul says, It's ironic that Jesus was convicted of blasphemy. But in all probability, the one who was committing blasphemy was down in the courtyard. Simon Peter. When you put the gospel accounts together, you realize that at this moment, this moment, three things happen simultaneously. Peter curses Jesus and swears that he doesn't know them, know him. 
The rooster cries, reminding Peter of Jesus' words that he would deny him three times before the rooster crows twice. But then Luke points to a third thing that at this moment takes place. Because as the rooster is crowing for daylight, remember going back to our timeline, they took Jesus from the home of Caiaphas to Pilate at daylight when the rooster is crowing. And as Peter is shouting out his curse, Jesus is led by. And Luke says, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Peter curses Jesus, swears he doesn't know him. As he's doing that, while he's still speaking, Luke says, the rooster crows. And while he's still speaking, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter breaks down and weeps. And I nearly break down and weep every time I read those words. The Lord turned and looked at Peter. But this week I asked myself the question, what was that look? What look do you expect for Jesus to give to Peter? Hearing him, denying him? Looking through eyes that were probably partially swelled up? His beard still dripping with the spit of Sanhedrin? His body already tired from sleeplessness, but now beginning to feel the brunt of the beatings that have already taken place. What look does Jesus give Peter? My mind I always thought of as a look of disappointment. How could you, Peter? Or a look of hurt. A look of anger. But above all, a look of condemnation. Because after all, if that was us, that's the exact look we'd be giving Peter, wouldn't it? Disgust, anger, disappointment. And often we reflect our own feelings and our own actions and our own attitudes onto God. But that's why we need to have the Bible and to read the Bible to hear what His actions and attitudes actually are. Because I'm convinced that that was not the look that Jesus gave to Peter. I'm convinced of that because of the next time we see the name Peter used in this Gospel of Mark. We don't find it for another chapter. Peter's name has been in nearly every chapter of Mark, but we don't find it at all in chapter 15. But the next time we find it, the next time Mark writes the name Peter is in Mark, or is in chapter 16, when Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, tells the women, go tell the disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. Just as he told you. Why add Peter's name? And we can write it off as well. Mark is writing from the perspective of Peter. He's a close friend of Peter. But Peter is one of the disciples. Why add Peter's name? And I think it is perhaps we're writing from the perspective of Peter. And Peter is saying, Jesus wanted me. Jesus still called me. Peter, the one who denied him, the one who disowned him, Jesus said, Peter, I still want you. In fact, that's why I went to the cross. That's why I didn't stop when I heard you cursing me. Think about that moment. All of the other disciples have abandoned him. There's only one who is in the vicinity of Jesus. And what does he hear him doing? Cursing him. At that moment, Jesus could have shaken off the guards that were holding him and vanished back into heaven and said, forget this. But Jesus, with those words still in his ears, Jesus still went to the cross. 
I bore, Jesus says, the penalty for blasphemy, even though you were the one who committed the sin. That old hymn that we sing occasionally, in our place, condemned he stood, sealed our pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. There's this wonderful verse of John in John that is written from the perspective of just a few days before our verses take place. And John writes that before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, and I love this line, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He loved them to the end. The look that Jesus gave Peter was not a look of disappointment, but a look of love. It was not a look of anger, but a, but a look of pity. It was not a look of condemnation, but, a, but a, a look of compassion. And it was this look, this look of Jesus in that moment that for Peter, I believe, made all the difference in his life. We often ask the question, well, what brought about this incredible change in Peter from the Gospels to Acts? From one who was willing to deny Jesus in order to save his own hide in the Gospels to one who we find in Acts is willing to stick to Jesus and willing to confess Jesus no matter the cost and willing, we know, to die for Jesus, which he does. What made the difference? And we often point to the resurrection. To seeing that Jesus had conquered death so there's nothing more to fear. Or or we point to Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was poured out on Peter and, and certainly that's a part of it. But I am convinced that it was this moment, this look of Jesus, that was the crux of the change. Because in his lowest moment, in his place of brokenness, in his failings, Jesus looked at him in love and went to the cross. Sinclair Ferguson writes this, Here Mark takes us down to the foundation of Peter's spiritual leadership. He was emptied, first of all, that he might be filled. He was broken down that he might be made strong. He wept so that he might know the joy of true forgiveness. Your experience, Ferguson writes, will not be quite the same as his, but God has not discarded that pattern for molding men and women into the Christians he wants them to be, has he? We think about Peter in the Gospels, and we know that he was always trying to prove himself to Jesus. To prove that he was enough, to prove that he was strong enough or good enough or worthy enough for Jesus to love him and to choose him. But here in this moment, all of that is out the window. But at that moment, Jesus looks at him in love and still goes to the cross and still says, get me Peter because I have plans for him. Now, we need to recognize that this is not the only look that Jesus gives. To the Sanhedrin and the Caiaphas, those who mocked him, those who hated him, those who despised him, it's a very different look that Jesus gives to him, to them. For Judas, one who felt the weight of his sin the same way Peter did, but, but never went to Jesus, instead gave into despair and fled from Jesus. It's a very different look. But for Peter, the one who realizes his brokenness, And looks to Jesus. Peter's sins, Peter's faults, Peter's wickedness don't drive Jesus away from him. 
but it draws Jesus closer to him. If you come to our prayer meetings, you know that one of the books I am mentioning quite often is this book, Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers. And if you are in a place where you just can't understand how Jesus could look at Peter like that, because you can't imagine with what you're doing, with the sin that you're fighting against, with the brokenness and the weakness that you are experiencing. If you if you always think that Jesus is looking to you in anger and disgust, then you, you need to read this book. Because that's what this book is about. But at the end of this book, I just want to read the epilogue, and I'll have parts of it on the screen. But he, he quotes 17th century preacher Thomas Goodwin. And he says this, he says, That which keeps men away from coming to Jesus is that they know not Christ's mind and his heart. The truth is, he is more glad of us than we can ever be of him. The father of the prodigal was the forwarder of the two that, to that joyful meeting. Have you a mind? He that came down from heaven, as himself says in the text, to die for you, he will meet you more than halfway as the prodigal's father is said to do. Go therefore, come in unto him. Oh, therefore, come in unto him. If you knew his heart, you would. Do you know his heart? Do you know his love for you? Do you know that he went to the cross for you when you were an enemy of him? Then why do you think in your weakness and in your brokenness and your sinfulness, he would run from you? He came to free you from your sin. And your sin moves him not to anger, but to pity. Again, if you scoff at him and continue, Hebrews 11 says, continue to live in sin deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth. If you continue down that way, expect judgment. But if you look to Jesus in your sin and cry out to him for help, the look you will find is one of love. Then he says this, Somehow my slides got way off, so just ignore them. Dane Ortland says this. Go to him. All that means is to open up yourself to him. Let him love you. The Christian life boils down to two steps. Step number one, go to Jesus. Step number two, see number one. Whatever is crumbling all around you in your life, wherever you feel stuck, this remains undeflectable. His heart for you, the real you. So go to Him. That place in your life where you feel most defeated, He is there. He lives there, right there, and His heart is for you. Not on the other side of it, but in that darkness. Your anguish is His home. Go to Him. If you knew His heart, you would. Father, we thank You that You have revealed Your heart to us. Father, we recognize that our sins have earned us nothing but judgment, nothing but wrath, nothing but being cast away. And Father, we we want to recognize the seriousness of that. Father, if there are those here in this room that have only heard the message that, that you love them, but but haven't seen the necessity of responding to that love by trusting in Christ, Father, may they hear that that if they have not trusted in Christ, they are in a place where love is not their experience, but wrath and, and judgment and condemnation. But Father, you have made the way so easy for us. You, you have done the, the, the difficult task of it, Father, and you have come for us. Father, you have gone more than halfway. You have gone all the way. 
so that we might know you and love you and experience your love so that we might not live in in this place of Peter who relied on his self his self and his own strength father but so that we might look to you in our, for our strength but father if there are those here in this room who feel beaten down who the enemy continues to hold over them their sins their weaknesses their failings father may they see that look that Jesus gave to Peter May they weep for their sins. May they weep for their brokenness. May they weep for their pain. But may they see that you are there with them in it. Father, we thank you for your love and your grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let me invite you, if you would, to stand. And let me read as this benediction, Revelation chapter 1. Verse 5, after saying that Jesus is the faithful witness, John writes this, To Him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by His blood and made us a kingdom, priest to His God and Father, to Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. You are dismissed. Go in peace. Yes. Of this book.